Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and this is another episode of our study in the book of Jeremiah. We've entitled our study, The Expectations of Jeremiah. We're going through the entire book, looking at all the different prophecies that Jeremiah gave. What were the things that he was expecting? Uh, We are now at chapter 6. And we're continuing Jeremiah's dialogue with the house of Judah and those in the land, warning them that because of their many sins and turning away from the Lord and forgetting the Lord, that the enemies of Israel would be coming soon and would be destroying Jerusalem. Now, just to recap by way of introduction before we get into chapter 6, Israel was positioned between two great world powers at that time, Babylon off to the east, Egypt down to the west. And Babylon and Egypt didn't get along with each other, and Israel is in the middle. That's not a good position for Israel to be in strategically. And the leaders of Israel there at the house of Judah were trying to make deals one with the other Uh, in the effort to, they thought that was the way to remain safe. And Jeremiah came along in prophesying judgment upon the house of Judah because of their many sins that their enemies would be uh, turning on them, that the alliances that they would be trying to form would not work, and that there were many in the land who did not believe that, uh, that there would be war, that it would involve Israel, that they would jockey between the two, successfully, but it's a little bit like um, sticking your hand into the middle of two dogs biting. That's a sure way to get bit, and essentially Jeremiah is giving that kind of prophecy to the house of Judah. We're going to continue on in these next couple of chapters of, again, Jeremiah specifically prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, which, by the way, if you were in those days, you couldn't imagine such a thing happening. Jerusalem was a walled city, and uh, there was always a belief that it would remain. God would never permit that to happen. We have the temple here in Jerusalem. Surely the Lord would never allow that to happen. That was what the general population and the leadership of, of Jerusalem was saying. Here's Jeremiah standing up and saying the exact opposite that the Lord is more than willing to destroy Jerusalem and the temple and those kinds of things. It was just unimaginable that such a thing could take place to them at the time. So with that introduction, let's jump right into chapter 6, where uh, Jeremiah now continues on with his pronouncements of judgment. Flee for safety, O sons of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Now blow a trumpet into Koah, and raise a signal over beth Herkaram. And evil looks down from the north, and a great destruction that... Let me, before I go any further, let's make sure we understand the dynamic of what uh, he's saying here. The tribe of Benjamin, the tribal lands of Benjamin, a lot of people don't know this, cut into the Temple Mount. In fact, the Holy of Holies where it was positioned, was not in the tribal lands of, of Judah 
It was in the tribal lands of Benjamin. And so he mentions Benjamin specifically and Jerusalem because the tribe of Benjamin had a piece of the city of Jerusalem. And that area to the north of Jerusalem was the land of Benjamin and off to the east. And he talks about blowing a trumpet, which would be the sound of war is coming, to raise a signal, and the evil looks down from the north. Now, as I shared with you before, um, Babylon is going to be the one that's going to come and attack um, Jerusalem and so forth. And Babylon is off to the east. It's where modern-day Iraq and the Euphrates River is at today. However, the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem would not be coming across the wilderness of Jordan, crossing the Jordan River, and then up to Jerusalem. Rather, it would be following what is referred to today as the Muslim Crescent, the Islamic Crescent. There's a region to the north extending from the Euphrates River up through the north part of Syria and then down into the north part of the land of Israel, that's the fertile ground. That's the ground of how an army would, would make their journey. So when the army actually arrives and is approaching Jerusalem, they're going to come from the north, not necessarily from the east. But he's really referring to it's Babylon that's going to be coming, and they're going to attack from the north uh, from that. So with that, verse 2, he says, The comely and the dainty one, the daughter of Zion, I will cut off. I want you to look at the language of this, and this is what he's going to do as he pronounced these judgments. It's almost like, um, when we look at these, he takes little word pictures, and he's trying to show this absolute contrast between what is now and what will be the harm and the evil coming to them uh, when they are attacked by the enemies. And so he makes, the, uh, he makes the comment, he says, The comely and dainty one, the daughter of Zion, I will cut off. You, if you were to see, and in fact in our messianic faith, if you've been to some of the different uh, conferences and events, one of the things that I absolutely delight in is you will see where the young ladies, the young girls, will do a worship dance. Uh, usually as a part of the program. And to me, seeing my granddaughters and and children uh, getting up and doing a worship dance, to me, is just like one of the sheer delights of the world to me. And he's talking about the small young girls and about how they are a delight and how they're dainty and, and uh, we attire them in a special way and we treat them in a special way. And uh, no one would ever tolerate harm coming to them. And he just simply says, I will cut them off. I will cut off. By the way, that's the biblical word, they'll die. If you're cut off from life, you die. And he says, those, those people that you love, and, the, and that uh, incredible contrast here, the little ones that you love, and so they'll die. And uh, very stark, and almost offensive. In the way he says that. Verse 3, shepherds and their flocks will come to her. They will pitch their tents around her. They will pasture each in his place. Prepare war against her. Arise and let us attack at noon. Woe to us for the day declines. 
for the shadows of the evening lengthen. Arise, let us attack by night and destroy her palaces. For thus says the Lord of hosts, cut down her trees and cast up a siege against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished, in whose midst there is only oppression. As a well keeps its waters fresh, so she keeps her fresh, her wickedness. Violence and destruction are heard in her. Sickness and wounds are ever before me. Be warned, O Jerusalem, lest I be alienated from you, lest I make you a desolation, a land not inhabited. Those are all uh, phrases and words um, speaking to how absolute the judgment is going to be against Jerusalem. Let me, um, let me share just a little something about ancient warfare so you can understand the language that Jeremiah uses here. Uh, when, a, when an army would come and they would uh, attack a, a foreign land and they would come up to the cities, and in those days the best defense of cities was to build high walls and to build walls around the city as a defensive mechanism. Now, that made it difficult for the attacking army. They would have to lay siege to that place. And the way they would lay siege to it is they would pick different times on when to generally attack. And it usually was in the daylight hours. You know, in the nighttime, you can't see. If you're fighting somebody behind walls, I mean, it's dark. In this particular means, though, he says the attack will not only be in the daytime, it will be at nighttime. Uh, that there will be an attack, yes, in the day, what you would expect, but there will also be an attack at night. Um, and then he says to lay siege to the city. What does that mean? It means that the enemy is going to be so strong, and this is the way they would overcome the walls of the city. Um, they will actually build what is called a dirt mound. They will, the army will go excavate dirt and baskets and wheelbarrow kind of devices. They will haul the dirt up and they dump it up against the wall of the city, and they build that dirt mound up and with a ramp to such an extent that it comes up to the top of the wall, and that way the army can rush up the dirt mound and go over the wall. Now, it took a long time to do that, and the enemy was really going to oppress you for a long time should that happen. And they, they, they were saying, he's saying that that's what's going to happen to the city. In other words, the enemy is going to come and attack, they're going to hit you day and night. They're going to be there a long time, and they're going to build a siege mound against you and overcome the walls. In fact, each year in the Hebrew calendar, uh, and you, if you've ever heard of the Tisha B'Av, uh, Tisha B'Av is the ninth of Av. It comes in the summertime. That date is the anniversary of the destruction of the temple that the Babylonians did. But if you back up a couple of weeks before that, it's called the 17th of Tammuz. That's the day the walls were breached. That's the day that the mound came up to where the enemy was able to get inside the city into some elements, and the fighting was now in the city. And then on the 9th of Av, which is the very next month, just a couple of weeks later, the temple had been destroyed once they breached the walls. So Jeremiah is talking about, yes, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. By the way, the walls are going to be breached, and, and uh, the, the enemy is going to lay siege to you. 
in the ancients, in those days, you couldn't have described a more terrible scenario. Um, today, a terrible scenario would be uh, that you're going to get hit like a, by a nuclear weapon. Uh, and we would look at that, and when we would hear such a pronouncement, we'd go, oh, my gosh, it is just horrible. It's just beyond imagination as to what would be the result. Well, this is the language he's using in his day, given ancient modern warfare, or ancient warfare, I should say, as to what was uh, he was predicting was going to come to Jerusalem. It's in the strongest terms possible. Verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, they will thoroughly glean as the vine the remnant of Israel. Pass your hand again like a grape gatherer over the branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are closed. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them, and they have no delight in it. But I am full of wrath of the Lord. I am weary and holding it in. Pour it out on the children in the street and on the gathering of young men together. For both husband and wife shall be taken, the aged and the very old. And their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and their wives together. Uh, for I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. For from the least of them even to the greatest, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. And they have healed, healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace, but there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I will punish them, they shall be cast down. I think what Jeremiah is doing here in this paragraph, he's reminding them, why is God going to allow this much harm to come to all of Israel, to the city, to, to his own house? What, why is it that the people of Israel that God loves and cares for has all made covenant with and have brought them out of Egypt? What, why is he going to allow this to happen? And he put, directly puts the blame because the people have turned away from him. They are they now have become um, evil and unto themselves in such a way that they have that the, the the opposites are happening to them. Instead of seeing that judgment is pending, they tell themselves peace, peace. Um, instead of rem, uh, them understanding and taking responsibility for the abominations that they're committing, they think they 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 pass them off as giving and being being spiritual. And later on, you're going to hear some other language uh, that, again, echoes this contrast. One of the things about understanding the prophets and especially spiritual teaching, and Yeshua used to do this as well as the prophets of Israel, they use contrast to illustrate um, things that are happening and to get you to try to understand certain spiritual concepts. For example, if I were trying to teach you a distinct way to recognize colors, for example, I would take a palette of, say, blue, and then I would take a palette of green, and then I would show you right between the two of them, and he says, you see, they're different. 
This is different from that. And then I turn around and I say black versus white. Um, and I show the contrast. And so what the prophets are doing here and what a lot of spiritual concepts are taught to us is by saying what God said that he wanted to do, what was the blessing, what and so forth. And here's the curse. If you don't do what the Lord has said, this is the result. This is life. This is death. This is where he established the city of Jerusalem and put his name there forever, and this is the place destroyed. You know, he uses this contrast to try to get them to awaken to it. Jeremiah is frustrated. He's laid these contrasts out, and they're not getting it. They're just not processing um, the warning. They're not taking personal responsibility for their own specific behaviors, which is is making the Lord very angry. And in effect, it, it, let me illustrate it this way. You already are doing harm to your fellow citizens to a great degree. You know, what is going to be more if I come and judge you all and do harm to everyone? You're doing the harm to begin with. And and he's trying to use that as a, a method to get them to wake up and to stop. Um, the um, When we discipline, you know, sometimes we use corporal punishment. Um, we, you, there's two ways to influence people if you want to change their behavior. One is that you can praise and encourage positive behavior. And they say that's actually the preferred way to go. I agree. But there come a point when you do good, you do good, you do good, and they still don't respond. And so that's when you shift gears and now you offer justice. You offer punishment as a, as a methodology to turn, turn it around, to correct the particular behavior. And it's very clear that Jeremiah is coming to the house of Judah and saying, Look, the Lord's already done all the good stuff with you, and you didn't respond to it. You're getting further and further away from him. You're turning away from him. You're, you're, you're now to the point where you're not listening at all to anything he does, even when he blesses you. So I'm going to use the other method the Lord is saying. I'm going to use the method of judgment and bring judgment upon you. Uh, verse 16, thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it. And you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Here's, here's the way he's setting up the contrast. Look at the ancient ways, the way they used to walk when they got blessing. And then I, I reminded you of it, and you've said, no, we don't want to walk in that. And I sat watchman over you, saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. I've sent those to warn you. You know what their purpose is. You know what the warning means. But you won't listen. You won't listen to the warning. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I'm bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their plans, because they have not listened to my words. As for my law, they have rejected it also. That's very fascinating. I mean, when the Lord says, you have turned away from my Torah, that's it. I mean, you're not willing to listen to me. Let me put that in context for you. All of you, I'm sure, are familiar with Exodus 20, 
when Moses was there with the children of Israel, they were in the wilderness at the base of Mount Sinai, how God powerfully came down on the mountain and how he spoke the Ten Commandments. And I've taught before many times that the experience for those people would, must have been stunning uh, because the scripture tells us that the voice of God, when he spoke those commandments, that it shook the whole mountain, that it split rocks, and rocks came tumbling down off of the mountain, that the, that the words and syllables, you know, hit trees and shattered trees, uh, animals calved, they gave, suddenly gave birth, you know, as a result of it. There was great fear and trembling on the part of it, that the, the, the words were echoing off their bones and rattling their bones and their body. And they, they, the people had the sensation that they thought they were going to die as a result of hearing God speak and, and uh, so forth. And this is when God gave us uh, the Torah. He gave us his commandments. Can you imagine on the day that that happened, having gone through that experience, standing and saying, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, I mean, it's just stunning. Well, that's essentially what Jeremiah is trying to say when he comes down to this last part here. And he says that you have turned away from me and now you, you don't even listen to the law. You are completely ignoring what God said at Mount Sinai. And you're not... You're not dealing with that at all, uh, whatsoever. The um, it's just stunning to me um, as to how Jeremiah voices this. Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the way is good and the walk in it, and you shall find rest for your souls. And they will say, "We will not walk in it." And I set my watchman over you, saying, "Listen to the sound of the trumpet, and we will not listen." Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what is among you, among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their plans, because they have not listened to my words. As for my law, they have rejected it also. That's where we're at. All right. For what purpose does frankincense come to me from Sheba? Now, stop and think about this. Why would frankincense be brought? Is because it would be part of the uh, thing for the sweet incense that would be coming up before the Lord in the temple to, to make a sweet fragrance. They, the priest would make this recipe of incense and they would burn it on the golden altar inside the temple. Why did they do that? Why did God instruct? Because he wanted this sweet fragrance to be in the temple coming up before the Lord. And we know that the picture of the sweet incense is like the picture of our prayers. When we pray, we are casting a sweet fragrance before the Lord. He loves to, he loves that. And he loves to have his people pray to him because it comes up into his nostrils as a sweet fragrance. That's the word picture that's used. It goes on further. And the sweet cane from a distant land. Again, these are the things that were used in the high worship of God in the temple. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, and your sacrifices are not pleasing to me. By the way, he's basically saying here, he said, why did you bring that stuff? You know, why did you bring that sweet fragrance 
in a, in a strange sort of way, he's kind of saying, all of your worship coming into the temple, the incense you burn, stinks. The altar, the, the gifts you're bringing, I don't like them. You know, the fragrance is not good. Um, it, it is not appealing to me. It's not pleasing to me whatsoever. Verse 21, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm laying stumbling blocks before this people, and they will stumble against it. Fathers and sons together, neighbor and friend, will perish. Now, before I leave this, I want to address something that, that Jeremiah does in this book that I've heard various Christian teachers like to quote from, and I just gave some of the verses for it, and you will hear it later on in the book. And the Christian teachers like to quote the part where Jeremiah says, I'm tired of all of your sacrifices. I'm tired of all of the forms of the temple worship. They love to count that because they then take the argument saying, well, you see, Jeremiah spoke of those were not good things. God doesn't really like them. That's the reason why we have the new covenant, because God really didn't like the old covenant, really didn't like the temple worship system, and it, it wasn't really pleasing to him. And that's the reason why we have the new covenant has replaced the old covenant, which is the whole argument is utterly absurd. What Jeremiah is doing here and trying to explain is, is that you cannot, if you're disobeying the Lord and willfully disobeying what the Lord says, I don't care what form of high worship that you do, it doesn't cover for your willful disobedience to the Lord. And basically what he was saying to them, your abominations, your adulteries, the way you mistreat other people in your community is not covered up by you bringing sweet incense to me and by you bringing various gifts to the altar. It doesn't cover that up. And so he's basically saying, the way I view you is not only have you done harm to one another, violating the commandments, then you come in and you make a mockery of the worship of me. Uh, because I know what's in your heart, and what's in your heart is to not listen to me and not obey me. So why are you going through the motions of bringing the incense and doing these things? Why, why are you doing the motions of it? I could give you a modern-day version, but really what we're talking about is this is hypocritical behavior on the part of a religious people. And we all know um, in our modern times there are certain religious figures who turn out to be hypocritical. They advocate the worship of God and, and the, the relationship with God, and then they turn around and, and their own behaviors is completely inconsistent with it. One of the things that as a uh, Messianic Torah teacher that is most disturbing to me is the theological aspect of advocating our faith in the Messiah and how that's the pinnacle of our faith, which I agree it is, and building a relationship with the living God is the most important thing. But then they poo-poo all of the other things that got you there. And what makes you think that your relationship with God is going to be excellent by you going around and saying nice platitudes 
about God and in turning around and denying what he says. And specifically teaching others against what he said. And specifically flaunting that you're not going to obey the commandments of the Lord. Or just completely ignoring the commandments of the Lord. And substituting your good feeling and your thing about, you know, loving God. I have heard many, many Christians explain to me that their justification for not wanting to keep the specific commandments of the Lord, whether it be Sabbath or Feast and Festival or behaviors with one another or understanding what God established through the people of Israel, and, and which is what establishing the, the real foundation of the kingdom is, they deny all of those things. And they go around saying, well, you see, I have this blessing over here, and that proves that, that I don't have to do that. And they're like the people that Jeremiah was dealing with. Well, everything is fine with me. I'm at peace. I'm, I'm doing fine here. I, I go to church. I go to temple. Uh, however, your behavior on the other side is you're denying everything God has said. God has said, walk in this way. And you say, I will not walk that way. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter how many commandments it is, if you violate one of them, that, that's the position. Uh, you all know, uh, you know, between the Christian faith and the Messianic faith, we Messianics keep the fourth commandment, which is to remember to keep the Sabbath holy, and you know very good and well that across the board, general Orthodox Christianity denies it. And they say, we will not walk that way. We will substitute another day for it. We will do it. And I'm not just focusing in on just the Sabbath. I'm, I'm looking at the principle here of denying any commandment. But that one is blatantly obvious for everyone to see. If you deny that one and you say, I will not listen to it, I will not walk that way, what does that really mean? Or is that a difference of theological opinion? How does God regard that? Well, God is sitting there going, they claim to be my people, but they refuse to listen to me. They think they have the blessings and the covenants with me, but they are willfully opposed to me. So that's the, that's the definition of a good relationship with God. I say not. It is not the definition. Jeremiah is trying to emphasize this point to the people. I don't care how religious you are. I know you got the temple system. I know you still got the priesthood. I know you still got all these other things here, but you're in big trouble with the Lord. Big enough trouble that he's going to come and destroy all of this. That's what he's trying to get them to understand. Neighbor and friend will perish. Uh, it's devastating. Verse 22 Thus says the Lord. Behold, a people is coming from the north land, and a great nation will be aroused from the remote parts of the earth. They seize bow and spear. They are cruel, have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea, and they ride on horses. Arrayed is a man for the battle. Against you, O daughter of Zion, we have heard the report of it. Our hands are limp. Anguish has seized us. Pain as of a woman in childbirth. Do not go out into the field and do not walk on the road, for the enemy has a sword. Terror is on every side. 
O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Mourn as for an only son, a lamentation most bitter, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. In basically no uncertain terms, he said, Babylon's on the way. The armies of Babylon are on the way. By the way, they're, they got horses, they got swords, they got spears, they got bows and arrows. They are fully trained. They're a combat army, and they're going to go through you like a hot knife through butter. They're going to wipe you out. Um, one of the things that we know historically that took place, in, and this is what led to Babylon being the one that came and laid siege to Jerusalem, was that the leaders of Judah decided to, in this conflict between Babylon and Egypt on either side, they thought it would be in their best interest to go ahead and throw their lot to Egypt. Okay, we'll become an ally of Egypt. And they didn't realize that when they did that, and Babylon found out about it, says, well, you know, as long as they're allies of Egypt, well, we're going to come and destroy Israel because we have that much wrath against Egypt. Now, beforehand, they didn't have a problem with Israel, but by siding with Egypt, all of a sudden now the armies of Babylon are going to come wipe Israel out because they have now sided with Egypt. And that was the dynamic, the actual um, providential part, and the actual practical part of what incentivized the Babylonians to come with such vicious behavior against Judah. I think that the children of Israel, the leaders of the land, the priests and all of those that were there, the princes, couldn't imagine Babylon coming against them because they're thinking, what have we ever done against Babylon? And they're thinking there's no reason for them to come and ever do such harm to us. But the moment they decided to side with Egypt, all of a sudden they now were in the same court with Egypt and going to receive the wrath of the Babylonian army. Uh, verse 27, <clears throat> I have made you an assayer and a tester among my people, that you may know and assay their way. All of them are stubbornly rebellious, going about as a talebearer. They are bronze and iron. They all of them are corrupt. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on. But the wicked are not separated. They call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. This is another one of those interesting word pictures that Jeremiah uses to explain the contrast. So what does he do? He talks about metallurgy. He talks about different metals. And in the ancient times, they would heat metals to various temperatures to separate out both the impurities from the metal and to separate out the different metals. Um, in um, Solomon's day, why well, he had his famous tin mines uh, that was there that he would uh, that they would use to make bronze and other things like that. And he's rattling off bronze and iron, you know, that they'd learned how to make iron. And he talked about how to form iron and these different metals. Well, you have to have the bellows, 
where you have to have a forge and a furnace and how that you would heat these metals and you get the fire real hot so you could make the metal molten and liquid and then you could mold it into shapes and work with it and create different metallurgical forms. And he's talking about all of the information about that and he's saying that essentially that the Lord has asked me, Jeremiah, to come and assess his people and to treat it like this is a forge and this is where we're trying to separate out the different distinct metals. And what he's saying is is that that the whole process of the trying to assay and trying to get the different metals out and get them pure and, and straight and so forth is is not working. And in fact, the language here, they call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. I learned not too long ago something about uh, metallurgy when it came to refining silver. I want to pass on to you. Um, Apparently, when you get silver ore and you want to make silver, while you get your forge, you, you heat it up and you start melting it. But there's a particular temperature you've got to get it to to melt correctly so that the impurities will come out. But you can't overdo it. If you overheat it, you actually destroy the silver, and it's now not good for anything. It's, it's just like hard chunk of something but you can't do anything with it uh, and the and, and the key to it is to make fine silver it needs you need to bring out where it's highly reflective it's shiny it's very workable you can use it to make different things with and so forth and it goes like this that there was a person who was curious about now exactly how do you do that and of course uh, in a forge and so forth they got to get certain temperatures correct they got to see certain containers um, you know, that, that would be able to handle all of this. And so they're going through and they're learning all about it. And the question comes down to at what moment in that process do you know that you've refined the silver to where you want to and you don't go further than you're supposed to? At what point? Is it a temperature? And they say, no, it's not a temperature. It's something happens to the silver. The moment the silver is made into fine silver, and they do only small portions of this when they do it. They, he's watching the silver, and he's adding the temperature, and he's trying to find the right moment. The right moment when the silver is made fine is the moment he sees its reflection in the metal. That's the moment that it's fine silver. If you go beyond that, you're making silver that's going to be rejected by everybody. Essentially, the word picture that we're looking at here, he says he uses this forging process, and he says um, the the bellows blow fiercely, the lead is consumed by the fire. It's completely burned up. It doesn't make into lead. In vain, refining goes on, but the wicked are not separated. We don't get the separation of metals correctly out. We don't get the impurities out correctly. And they call them rejected silver. He's basically saying that you, Israel, there was a moment there where you were reflecting me. I'm the refiner of silver. 
you reflected the Lord, but now you've gone too far and you don't reflect the Lord anymore. And now you've become destroyed. You're rejected silver now. Uh, an incredible word picture, an incredible way of describing um, the issue with, with Israel at that point. And this is uh, the, the way he's using this metallurgic, this ancient metallurgic method to, to use that as a comparison stands out as one of these interesting moments in this book. Let me uh, let me share with you. Uh, this is a, a theory that I have. I uh, I don't know that it's shared a lot by other uh, Bible teachers. Um, you, we know that the book was written by Baruch. We we know that he had the scribe that went around with him. And given the nature of these word pictures that Jeremiah is giving, I don't think the way he delivered this. I don't think he went out like you and I are doing, where we read a whole chapter or a couple of chapters, and we just lay all of this stuff out because it gets a little, there's so much information and so many word pictures, they kind of, if you hear too many of them, they get muddled. Instead, I think what he did is that he would have a moment where he would share a word picture with them, a very poignant picture with the people, and Baruch would record that. And that the next day or a couple of days later, he would go out to the people and he would share another word picture with them about the judgment that was coming. And Baruch would record that. Well, when the book is compiled, then you have these individual paragraphs. You have these individual word pictures all put together as a collection. And that's what we are looking at in these judgments. It wasn't he stood up and here for chapter uh, 6, he gave this giant oratory. I think that these were individual things that he tried to give uh, as individual word pictures to try to get the attention of the leaders, the priesthood, the various prophets, the princes, the general people, whoever he was speaking with, he would try to share something uh, in a concise way that would lend itself to understanding what this prophecy was about. And I think what Baruch has done in writing the book is he's pulled a whole collection of these down. So part of the struggle that you, you and I are at the moment is, as we go through this systematically, we have to remember these are kind of like standalone thoughts. They, each one is, they all carry the same message, but they, they, they are standalone things that was, and for example, here from verse 27 through the end of the chapter, there was probably one day where Jeremiah happened to be near a forge. He probably was in the setting of where that, and he had an opportunity to talk to some people, and he probably used the example of seeing a refiner of metals, somebody doing the metallurgical work, and he probably used that as an example. Now, I say that, again, um, that's speculation on my part, but we definitely saw Yeshua do the same thing wherever he went. When he would go and teach, he would use the setting of what he is to speak. And I think Jeremiah probably did something very similar in his laying out his prophecies to the people of Israel. Some, it, there are times when it specifically says that he went and spoke to the leaders. Sometimes he went and spoke to the common people. Sometimes he was talking to the priesthood. Uh, and, and I think he was using the setting of whatever there was 
um, to try to illustrate these different word pictures of judgment coming upon him. All right, we still have some more time in our program, so let's go. Let's begin into chapter seven. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, "Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim them this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all of you who in Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord." Let me stop and say what I just explained. Here's an example of that. You know, the word of the Lord said, hey, Jeremiah, I want you to go to the gate. And the people that are coming in and out, I want you to speak to them. Speak to them at that location. So they're coming in and going out, and he's speaking to them at that point. So there's there's the context of the setting when he speaks to them. Verse 3, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Uh, stop and think for a moment. They're already dwelling there. And Jeremiah said, look, if, if you'll amend your ways, God will let you live here. Well, they're kind of already there. What does that mean? If you don't amend your ways, you're not going to be allowed to live here anymore. If you amend your ways, I'll let you continue to live here. But if you don't amend your ways, you're not going to get to live here anymore. You're, you're going to be somewhere else. That's, that's what the logic of what he's saying here is. Verse 4. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land which I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Yeah, this is the place where the temple's out. Yes, this is Jerusalem. This is the place God has placed his name. Yes, you're here at the moment, but if you don't change your ways, you won't be here. You will not be in this place, is essentially what he's saying. Which is, again... Uh, if you stop and think about it, pretty powerful way uh, to to express the impending judgment. And I like the fact that he's at the gate. You know, people were coming into the city to go to the temple. And he's announcing to them that your argument about this is the temple, this is the temple, this is the temple is fine, but it's not going to mean anything to you if you're not allowed to be here. And that's the message. That's the way he's contrasting this. Uh, Verse 8. Behold, you're trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered that you may do all of these abominations? Has this house, which is called by name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. Let me go back again to what I had shared with you earlier. Jeremiah is saying to the people, he said, coming into the temple and using that as a kind of a cover. In other words, publicly, this is what you appear to be doing. You appear to be worshiping the one true God. 
you're coming to his house, uh, you're doing all the right and proper things, and yet this is what your behavior really is, and he's basically calling, he said, is that what you think is going to be acceptable? You, do you think going to the temple, coming to Jerusalem and, and doing the things with me in the temple is somehow going to be my grace is going to be so great and my mercy is going to be so great, I'm going to excuse all this other behavior of yours. He's basically saying you're flaunting the grace and mercy of God and it's not going to work. Paul in Romans chapter 6 emphatically gives us this lesson. Should we sin so that grace may abound? Should we, as a result of our relationship with God, should we uh, go ahead and mess around and do inappropriate things, knowing we have this wonderful uh, gift of life from the Messiah and we have this forgiveness and so forth, and, and essentially... The way it works out is we'll go ahead and sin because God's grace will cover all of it anyways. Well, Paul emphatically teaches, God forbid. And that's what was going on in Jeremiah's day. Uh, when I hear a person uh, give as a defense, a theological person give as a defense why they don't have to listen to the commandments of the Lord by saying, well, I have the grace of God. Um, like in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah would stand right there and say, no, you don't. No, you don't. And Paul teaches the same thing in Romans chapter 6. Um, yet, it's a common thing, uh, even amongst people today, as it was then. This is part of, you know, you would think that we would learn the lesson from the past. Um, well, in Jeremiah's day, did they learn the lessons from when their ancestors came out of Egypt in the earlier days? No. And Jeremiah complained that they weren't learning the lesson, that they were falling into error again. And we see the same things present today. Now, if... Jeremiah is coming and pronouncing there's going to be judgment on um, all of the people and on all of the land in his day. What do you think is foreboding for us? Think about this for a moment. If, if we're making the same mistakes that Israel made in those days, and do you think it's going to be different for us in the results than it was for them? And for those of you who argue, well, we have the Messiah now. They didn't have the, They had the Messiah. They had the one true God. They had God's grace and they had God's mercy. And in fact, they had the whole temple system. They had the definite, proper worship methodologies that were instituted by God himself. So the, the idea that, well, we have the Messiah, and that's the reason why we'll be exempt from his judgment is utter theological ridiculous. Do you understand why God's going to allow the great tribulation to come now? Why there's going to be a time of distress that will come upon the world that will be greater than anything has ever been happened to the world? And by the way, it will affect all of us. Now, his remnant will be preserved. 
just as the remnant was preserved in the day of Jeremiah. But this idea, oh, well, we're not subject to the judgments that were in the Old Testament and when the prophets spoke of the judgment of Jerusalem. None of that could ever possibly affect us. Where we're doing the same sins they did, we're just as defiant as the people were then. What makes us think that we're not going to be subject to something in the future? What makes us think? Well, I can tell you that what makes you think that is error. The reality is, is what God has to say about the end of the age is completely consistent with what Jeremiah is talking about here. In fact, when we get to it, I'm going to point out and show you Jeremiah prophesies about our day and about us. And he speaks to the future saying that in that last day, we're going to be doing the same dumb things that the people were doing in his day. And he speaks to there will be a judgment for you at that time. Uh, so if you're looking for another motivation and a reason why we should study Jeremiah, maybe it might be helpful to us. Uh, to understand the dynamics of how to get right with the Lord and walk in his ways. Amen? All right. So with that, uh, we are going to stop, and we will um, um, take up from, uh, we're going to start at verse 12 in our next program. Chapter 7 and verse 12 will be the beginning of our next program. Shalom to all of you.